Please be seated. What right do we have to exist as a church? Well, we have a constitutional right, you may answer, and we certainly do. Our nation affords us freedom of religion and the right to assemble peaceably. If pressed further, we could say, well, we, we filed papers of incorporation as a nonprofit with the state of Minnesota, and along with the bank, we own this property. It's ours. We have, the key, we have every right to exist as a local church. This explains our legal right as citizens of a free society. But what right does Eden Baptist Church have to say, we are the body of Christ? We are a legitimate local church in the eyes of our Lord and Savior. Many Christians believe their church is authorized to exist simply because someone felt called by God to start it. End of conversation. If you feel called by God to do something, then it's got to be right, they would argue. Others cite Matthew 18 and verse 20, and you've maybe heard this from time to time. They say, where two or three are gathered, there's Christ and there's the local church. That's not really, and it's not what Jesus said, but many would claim Matthew 18:20 is all is needed. Just some Christians, two, three, gathered together. Others claim their local church is approved by an unbroken historical link that stretches back to an apostle, to the ancient church in some way. And make no mistake, our submission to apostolic authority is absolutely essential. And we will be standing today, as we work through this sermon, on apostolic authority in the writings of the apostles. But the New Testament never suggests a local church's legitimacy is tied to an unbroken historical pedigree. Obedience and conformity to the New Testament pattern is our birthright not heritage, not according to the New Testament vision. I would hope that our current series of sermons on the topic of the local church would equip us all at this point that have been part of it or have been part of this church for any time or known the Lord for any time, that it would equip us to say, first of all, we have no right to exist as a local church unless the risen Christ has regenerated us by His Word and Spirit. The local church is a representation of what the risen Christ is doing in this world. So if he's not doing that in our life, if he's not regenerated us by word and spirit, we have no right to be a church. Secondly, I think we would be able to say, on the basis of this series, we have no right to exist as a local church unless we have qualified men occupying the offices of leadership that Jesus ordained to shepherd and to serve his flock. We might be a gathering of Christians, but to be the body of Christ, a legitimate local church, we need to have these offices functioning. And thirdly, an authentic local church practices baptism in the Lord's Supper, and it encourages a culture in which God's Word is faithfully taught where people are learning the truth that God has revealed and growing in their Christian faith. But in addition to all of this, 
the New Testament reveals that our right to exist as a local church hinges on the nature of the relationships that we value and actively pursue as members of the body of Christ. The way that we relate to one another is an essential piece of our right to exist as a church. One way Eden Baptist Church demonstrates that we are the body of Christ is by agreeing to pattern our relationships as a community to the apostolic vision. And we recognize this as we gather on the Lord's Day, and we recognize it with joy to know this is our project to develop a relationship with one another, to order our life according to the Scriptures, that the way that we relate within the congregation displays the work of the risen Christ to save His people and accords with what the Word of God teaches. Now clearly, every local church and this local church falls short. We do not approximate the New Testament vision as we should. But I ask each one of us to consider truths. If you've been part of this church for any length of time, these are familiar paths. But I would ask each one of us to consider afresh and anew the kind of relationships that Jesus envisions to be worked out in the midst of the church that He has saved. Nothing less then the legitimacy of our very existence as a local church depends on how we respond to this revelation. The Scriptures teach it. We then, as a community, need to gather around it and put it into practice. <coughs> so let's consider a matter we know well, but by way of review, the nature of member-to-member relationships in Christ's body. And we are going to do, we're going to collect a number of passages from the New Testament documents today rather than work through one, as might be more typical. But I think there's a, there's a message through the whole New Testament that we want to bring together fairly rapidly here today as we look at how are the members of the church to relate to one another. So I encourage you to turn to these passages. Some will I'll have here for you on the screen. But Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, our Bible's fairly open to it on their own, I assume, and we have been here in this series on the local church already, just briefly. Here I'd like to focus a little, at a little bit greater length, without going into much detail, to demonstrate what the New Testament teaches, first of all, that church members are called to speak truth to one another in ways that enrich and build up our faith in Christ. Now we're going to speak to each other in a lot of other ways as well. Or, we could say it in a different direction, everything that we say to one another, even the mundane conversations, are to point and go in this direction. So we are called to speak truth to one another in ways that enrich and build up our faith in Christ as a body. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 4. Paul has declared God's saving mercy and regenerating power which now operates in the lives of those that he chooses to save. Paul further wants the Ephesian church to understand that the ascended and exalted Christ, verse 10, gives to his church, verse 11, 
apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. For what reason does Jesus provide these offices as a sovereign gift to the church? There's one overarching purpose with two aspects. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the works of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. To equip the saints for this aspect, the works of ministry, and for this aspect, the building up of the body. So teaching God's Word to God's people equips them to carry out the work of Christ that brings the church to spiritual maturity. So to do the work of Jesus and to increasingly look like Jesus in the fulfillment of God's will on earth. This purpose is pursued, verse 13, it's pursued until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. That could be worked out at great length, but the idea is we're going to keep at this until we come to maturity. We're not swayed by the world's message. We're not swayed by the flesh's desires, but we are brought to conformity to God's truth. So we will speak to one another to this end. And how do we do it? It's by means of edifying speech, again. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice the phrase, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love. Not swayed by this world, not pulled away by the passions of the flesh, but rather, in contrast to that, we're going to talk to each other. And we're going to talk to each other in ways that leads us on the right path, that helps us stay there, that encourages growth. In fact, it says here at the end of verse 16 that the body will grow as so that it builds itself up in love. Jesus intends for us to relate to one another in such a way that contributes to one another's growth. That's obvious, I think, to this church. It's obviously more difficult to put into practice. But this is our calling. Christians, then, who view their walk with God as a private matter are confused. They're confused about the very nature of the church. They don't really understand what it is. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes they're just hiding something. I want to work out my Christian faith alone. I have my private devotions. I do things at home on my own. And what they're really doing is hiding from the spotlight of encouragement that shines in a local church that is rightly ordered. The local church is designed by Christ to function as a body in which members submit to the authoritative teaching of God's revealed truth and lovingly speak that truth to one another so as to contribute to one another's spiritual maturity. So by means of mutual edification, the church is to build itself up in love. 
which will happen when each part is working properly. Verse 16. You notice that. Each part. Each body member. Not one body member or a handful of body members, but the entire body, each member doing its part, fulfilling the function that Christ intends. As we do that, the church will grow spiritually. It will deepen. It will mature. It will be built up. There's a task here. In these summer months, isn't it great to be in the middle of summer in May? Um, all of you complaining about the heat, you need to just go back three months and remember. You were complaining about something else back then. But uh, this, we're, we're in the middle of summer, and it, as summer comes, we tend to get out more. Driving down the freeways and going here and there and getting out into nature. And as you go out in nature, one thing I love to see, I don't know why, maybe it's bad, but I love seeing barns that are falling in on themselves. You ever see those? I mean, they're, just, they're intriguing. The, the barns are they're great to see. I love the rural passage and going out into the countryside, but those barns that have fallen in, I, there's just a story with each one. Do you ever imagine as you see these barns, you've seen it, right? Somebody talked to me here, am I the only one? But you see those roofs, they've just collapsed in and the walls are starting to collapse in on themselves. Were they built that way? I mean, clearly time has passed and they have fallen into disrepair. And then you think, how do the barns that are standing that are even older, that look really good, why is that? It's not, it's not that anything probably was done wrong at the building of the barn. It's the maintenance. There are beams that began to rot up in the ceiling, and I can imagine that's very difficult to repair. But somebody has to get up there and replace that rotting beam to stabilize the structure. And they can last for a long, long time if they're maintained appropriately. In like manner, we as members of the body of Christ need to continue to add beams to the church. We need to continue to structure, to, to build the structure, to give it stability, to encourage its ongoing maintenance. Now I realize the church is not a dying entity like a barn. It's a living, breathing body. But if we could use that example, our, our, our ceiling our roof can cave in. The, the, the life of the church can begin to implode as we fail to recognize our responsibility to one another. Let's stabilize and add beams to the structure. Strengthening it, building it up. Sometimes those conversations get very serious, particularly when faith falters. There's a, a rotted beam that needs to be replaced and strengthened. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3 as we look at what is the very serious side of this project. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. Take care. Hebrews 3 verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Brothers, he's speaking to professing believers, to those that would be assumed to be Christians. Be careful. Be careful, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. That is to depart from the life of faith in Jesus, something to which every professing believer is susceptible. 
How is the body of Christ intended to combat this danger? Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We don't hold our original confidence firm to the end. We have not come to share in Christ. But not knowing where we are, not knowing what the need is in every heart, we continue to combat this apostasy. Now this word to exhort here means to encourage others to hold firm to their confidence in Jesus crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins and our eternal hope in the context here. Seldom does it mean pointed, formal kind of conversation, but it always speaks of honest and open discussion. To talk with one another, where are you? Where's your faith? To build each other up in that faith. And you notice here that it's every day. It's not just on Sundays, but it's every day. points to an ongoing relationship. In this same book, chapter 10, we come to this same theme, reiterated in in the well-known verses of 23 and following. Hebrews 10.23, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our faith, of our hope, without the Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Again, it's a call to persevere in the faith, to hold on to the truth. We are to carefully consider our own hearts, but not in a self-centered way, not in a way that just looks at me, but verse 23, I'm to endure in the faith, not to waver in my faith. And verse 24, let us consider how to stir one up one another to love and good works. To stir up means to urge on, to stimulate, to incite. I'm working that out all the time. I, I don't know. It's, it's difficult to know how to do that. But to use speech, and it, I think, starts with prayer, to know as I come to the congregation, how can I speak the right words to God's people to incite them to good works? To encourage it. To speak frankly of faith struggles as is appropriate and to do so every day, stirring one another up, urging, stimulating, inciting. That's what the gatherings of the church are for, in part. They're for us interacting with one another to do this kind of work. Verse 25, not, now here's the opposite of that, Stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The opposite of neglecting the assembly is not to hear good teaching, although that case could certainly be made for that, but the opposite of neglecting the assembly is encouraging one another. A major reason for attending church is to speak to one another mutually edifying words. This might look, as we have in James 5, to confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. It might be what we've already done here today, I assume every one of you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. That singing, in the very singing of the church, there is a feeding on the truth of God. And we come to church to so build one another up in the faith. And so the challenge for us is to come to the assembly prayerfully and mentally prepared to encourage others. That may be days you come in and you need encouragement and that's it. You don't have anything to give. That's good too. That's when most people stay home. That's a good time to come. We come together then looking for those that we can encourage and seeking to receive encouragement from one another. To strive, as Paul says to the Corinthians, to excel in building up the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. Secondly, let's add to this, we're called to speak truth to one another in ways that enrich and build up faith in Christ. And secondly, church members are to serve one another in ways that meet needs and bring comfort. And here on the screen, I'll just put up a number of passages that make this clear. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. To care for needs. Not necessarily to open your house and have a dinner, but to care for, deed, for needs. 1 Corinthians 12, 25, care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We've sought to do that already this morning in our earlier hour as we prayed for a family in crisis. We pick up those needs. They're, they're our needs. They're our challenges. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, when you come together, each one is a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. You've come together, whether you're singing, whatever you're doing together, let all of it be done, not for self, but for building others up. Philippians 2, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Look to the interests of others. That's our call. Now acknowledging there are health, family, and work-related exceptions, age, health, difficulties, challenges, certainly there are exceptions, but if you put all this together and seek to deal with it honestly, you cannot slip in and out of church for the rest of your life without talking to anybody. To honor these commands means that we have to be relating to one another and having a certain level of conversation. This may not be every week. It may not be with every person. It may be informal. But there is going to be a conversation in relationship that says, I need you to help me continue on in the faith and you need me. And I probably won't state the second one because <laughs> it sounds proud, but it's not. It's the truth. Other people need me, and I need them. And we've got to have conversations that speak the truth, not just formally like this, but with one another. You cannot look at your church as a service provider and church members as customers that you're free to ignore. You cannot do that and honor these texts. 
You're just not tracking the direction that Christ intends for the life of His people if you respond that way. You cannot say, I don't need the church. And you cannot say, the church does not need me. You can't say that in light of these passages. You're either following Scripture on these matters or you're not. And what is more, you can only pursue such relationships with a specific body of people. This just goes too deep to be general. Meeting specific needs, building up people in the faith, involves knowing them, talking to them, encouraging them, and remember the word, every day. It doesn't mean you do it every day, but it means the life of the church is every day involved in that kind of work. You just can't tap into the New Testament and its vision of the church without having those types of relationships and pursuing them. So to relate this way, we must know people and actively love them in practical ways. So let me say these two things again. I don't have a slide here for it. But church members are called to speak truth to one another in ways that enrich and build up our faith in Christ. And secondly, church members are to serve one another in ways that meet needs and bring comfort. That's the vision of the relationships we're to enjoy. Now we're going to take a journey in a different direction. It's a very, well, very similar direction, but just a different take on it. And that is the nature of shepherd-to-flock relationships in Christ's body. We've, we learned, first of all, and I, I, I draw these points with, with an illustration of verses that could apply to probably all of the points I'm making here, but we'll somewhat arbitrarily put them under these categories. The first is this. This, I believe, is what the New Testament shows us. The shepherds of the church are commissioned by God to keep watch over the spiritual condition of church members. That's very obvious to us, but this is what the New Testament says. We want to align ourselves with this. Hebrews chapter 13, we're in the book. Let's turn just to a few chapters further in. Chapter 13 and verse 17. Remembering the New Testament use of words for the leadership of the church are varied, particularly with his shepherding task. Elders, overseers, shepherds, pastors, and here leaders. I think they're all referring to the same idea. Obey your leaders, it says in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey, that word probably means something a little differently in our culture than the, word, the meaning of the Greek word, but the idea is to be responsive to their leadership. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Is willingly join with the direction where they're pointed, as is appropriate. For, why? They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account so they keep watch over your souls. That's their job. And this isn't a, a, an easy job. They've got to give account to Christ who died for this flock. That's their task. And as that's their task, recognize that and honor the direction that they're pointing. Verse 17 at the end. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We're not developing that second half of the verse here as such under this particular point. But it's very clear that Christ has commissioned leaders to oversee the spiritual condition of the church. And it's to their benefit to join in on the project. So the first 
what we've dealt with first, the member-to-member relationships, that's to be going on to build one another up in the faith. There are to be overseers who look over that whole process and seek to keep it on track, as well as members cooperating with that. Secondly, the shepherds of the church are to diligently lead the church along the path of sanctification. So not only overseeing what the church is doing with one another, but also being at the front and walking into a faithfulness that helps the church to move that way. And here I'd like us to turn to Paul's writings to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy as he gives direction to the Ephesian church, he says in verse 11 of 1 Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4.11, command and teach these things. That is, Timothy is to speak with authority as he calls the flock at Ephesus to heed God's word and to lead a life worthy of his calling. Timothy is to do more than simply teach, however. Look at verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So Timothy is to live among the people. They are to, he's to live in such a way that they see his life and it diffuses criticism and cynicism. That guy stands up there and says those things. He's got his part to play. He does this little speech, but he doesn't live that. And we're not going to either. The way it goes in many contexts. Not with you, Timothy. Not in the Ephesian church. Not in the church of Jesus Christ. You speak the truth, but you live it. Squash cynicism and criticism by the way that you live. No man is is up to this, but this is the call, this is the direction, this is to be the order of your life. And until I come, we've focused particularly on this verse in the first sermon of this series, but until I come... sorry, the second, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. That's to take up his focus as he oversees the church. But notice now verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. You have a particular function in this church. It comes with uh, apostolic authority to deliver the truth to God's people Verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Hopefully the church will make progress, but they need to see your progress in the faith. That you are growing in Christ. That you are coming to understand how to live righteously and fight sin. So the ministry of the Word and the quality of Timothy's life were to combine to sanctify the assembly to purify it, to keep it on track. I've thought of this often in the context of my own upbringing. How many times I wanted to run another direction, but I couldn't against the example of my father. I just couldn't do it. It was faithful. It was solid. It was a course setter. Now there's no sinless man on earth. 
And there's no sinless pastor that should be followed in every aspect of his life. But this is what Paul is saying to Timothy, and he knows how hard it is. He knows Timothy is made of flesh. But he said, set the course. Make it difficult for them to walk away from God by the example of your life. There are leaders in churches that make it very easy to walk away. They set an example of unfaithfulness and it encourages people to just walk how they choose to walk. Timothy, don't let that be you. Set an example. Let them see your progress in the faith. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. And verse 16, right on track, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. There's nothing less at stake in Timothy's pastoral ministry than the salvation of the church. They're to see his example, they're to see his progress, it's to help keep them on track, he's to be leading them in the direction that God, as God is transforming lives, and all of this will save them. It doesn't mean this will contribute to their salvation. They will be forgiven of their sins and they will go to heaven because of your life. That's not what it's saying. But what it is saying is that it will contribute to their faithfulness. It will contribute to their godliness. You will be working for their sanctification. Saved for time and eternity once for all. Being saved through this life until we are ultimately, finally saved. In that center section, Timothy, keep them on track. Work with this church. Lead this church forward. You will be contributing to their ongoing salvation. Not the once for all. Not that which is already finalized and settled in heaven. But that inner section. That middle section. You will save yourself and your hearers. You will be sanctified. You will be growing in the faith. Thirdly, whoa. Okay, there's a thirdly here somewhere, and apparently not. So you don't need it, but I'll just give it to you. Church members are to respect the labors of their spiritual shepherds and esteem them for their work. Church members are to respect the labors of their spiritual shepherds and esteem them for their work. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In verse 12, 1 Thessalonians 5.12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. That phrase, over you in the Lord, indicates we're talking here about spiritual shepherds. And verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 5, To esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So what... What do these words indicate shepherds of the flock are to do? How are they to relate to the church? They labor among you. That is, they work hard for the spiritual prosperity of the flock. They are over you. They exercise oversight with authority and they admonish you, which means they speak with moral authority, calling you to move, calling you to go in this direction on behalf of Christ to walk in obedience with the Lord. 
It's clear that the elders will know the members of the flock and watch over their moral development. This is a relationship. They will be correcting of sin. There will be rendering of counsel. Generally speaking, words of edification both publicly and privately. That's the kind of relationship it will be. It will be one that says, I care what's going on inside of you. And I want to reveal to you what's going on inside of me as we mutually build one another up in the faith. And there's my Colossians 1 and verse 28. It's gone, but let me read it to you. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That was Paul's purpose. To present all mature in Christ. We're going to meet the Lord. We're not going to last forever on this earth. We are passing through, we're all dying, and barring the return of Christ, we're going to die and meet Him and stand in His presence. I don't care, says Paul, if you go and stand before the Lord wealthy. I don't care if you're famous. I don't care what you have accomplished in the community ultimately. I want you to stand before Him mature. I want you to stand before Him faithful to his call upon your life. Let's work to that end. And the church works together to that end. So what right does Eden Baptist Church have then to exist as a local church? One answer is that we have agreed as a church by God's grace to pursue the kind of relationships the New Testament is commending here. Some we've seen on the pages of Scripture, some on these screens, the screen I've shown these verses, all of these verses just rolling together and coming over us as we think about that kind of relationship, we're saying we're, we're, on, we're with that. We're, we're going that way. That's what we want to do as a church. Yes, we fall short. We have a lot of progress to make. I do. So much. But we have agreed to value and pursue this New Testament vision. We have. We said, how? Why, what have we done? Our church covenant summarizes the kind of relationships we find in the New Testament. Our church covenant is a summary of what we've seen in these verses. It's an agreement on what we believe to be the true nature and mission of the church. It's an agreement to pursue a culture of accountability and edifying love for one another. In the broad sense, it's a statement summarizing the nature of the shepherd-flock relationship and of the member-to-member relationship. And agreeing to this covenant permits the elders to identify the people for whom they will assume such spiritual oversight. It permits new members to identify themselves as those who stand forward and do not merely attend a church, but stand forward and say, I want to be part of that project. I want that accountability in my life. And I see what the New Testament vision is, and I want to be part of it. It allows them to step forward and to say that. It is an, this covenant is an abbreviated statement of what the regenerate church or what the regenerate life looks like, the kind of life we are called to live in Christ in community. Well, prospective members are asked 
to look back in time and to give evidence that they are regenerate believers. What a church covenant is, it allows them to look forward in time and say, this is how I'm going to live. By the grace of God, I know that I will fail, but with your help and with the forgiveness of God's grace, this is how I'm going to live. The church covenant is not an extra-biblical document. We're not making up anything. It is simply reflecting what's in the New Testament, but it summarizes the whole New Testament responsibilities of church members and leaders of churches. And it says we're, we're, this is the track we're on. And then on a practical level, covenanting together permits us to define the specific members of the body of Christ with whom and to whom we are committed to minister as a body. Now, I, 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 we get this. There, there, there's some here who you're wondering, are you people awake? This is really countercultural. We know that. We know the path of Jesus Christ is counterculture on a lot of levels. Such scrutiny, accountability, effort, putting myself under the authority of a church and inviting all of the other members to watch the progress of my life, that's countercultural. Particularly here in the West, leave me alone. I'll do my own thing. You mind your business, I'll mind mine. Jesus Christ comes into this setting and says, mind one another's business. Not in an obnoxious way, not in a way that simply wants to feed curiosities, but in a genuinely loving way, invade one another's space. Come to know each other, build one another up in the faith, and identify with a body of believers where you say, it's okay for you to look at me that way, and I will give myself to encouraging others that way. We can't assume that about anyone. So we ask, knowing it's countercultural, knowing it is in some measure restrictive. It's channeling the culture of our church. It's channeling it a certain way. There's, there's ball game churches. I was in one of those once. It's so huge. It's such a show that you come out and, I mean, down to the cigarette smoke and the jammed parking lot, I just felt like it was a high school football game letting out. It, we, we came for the show, we left in these crowds of people running, and we got in cars and sat literally in a parking lot, jammed, packed, for 30 minutes to get out of the lot. That's not evil to be large. But that kind of culture is not what we're, re we're finding revealed in Scripture. Again, a large church can do this. It's harder, but it's possible. I'm not going to say that it's not possible. Look at Acts 2. But it cancels the kind of concept that we just simply come in, consume a service, and leave. And so it is countercultural, it is restrictive, it is channeling us in a certain way, but we do it willingly. We do it willingly to conform to what the New Testament vision is, knowing that there are many people who don't like the New Testament vision. And what we're saying as a church is they're free, but we're going to start with what that vision is. And we're going to work it out as long as God gives us life together. 
And so I don't think we can develop and think through the idea of the local church without including this conversation of identifying as members, taking on that responsibility for one another and to one another, and also relating as shepherd and flock in a way that is pictured here in Scripture. If this is offensive, it's not intended to be any more than speaking what we believe the New Testament says, and we'd love to have a conversation with you about it further. If it's convicting, good. We're here with open arms, and we'd love to talk. Let's move. Let's go forward. I don't know about you, but for me, the New Testament continues. God's Word as a whole continues to shape and mold and direct me in directions I don't feel like going. Let's go. We'll go together. We'll encourage each other forward. And by God's grace, put into practice the pattern that He's laid out in His Word. Let's bow for prayer as we dedicate ourselves as a church to this end and as we seek the salvation of all. Father, in prayer we labor again and we ask that You would do this work in us. We are falling very short. We have much to improve. But I thank You for a congregation of believers who are committed to line their lives up to the New Testament pattern. And I pray that you'd encourage and build us. For those who know not Christ as Savior, we plead that you'd bring them to saving faith and that they would even see that in the midst of all of this conversation, a church covenant is really just a reflection of your covenant with your people and of a new covenant by which you write your word on our hearts and provide through the death and resurrection of Christ the forgiveness of sin. I pray that we would never view our relationship together any other way than grounded and centered on the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to live this way because of what He did to die for us. And so, on the authority of that work, I pray that You would conform this church to Your desires and that you would bring new members into it who are equipped by regeneration and by covenantal commitment to walk forward in obedience with your word. We can't do this, but we lay the request at your feet and ask that you hear our cry. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand with me. And just